Welcome to the Spy Who Raised Me podcast. Conversations between a daughter and her father. Yes, you've guessed it. He was a spy. Hi, I'm Jane Craigie and I'm here with my dad, Ian Craigie. He had a career in intelligence. And as a family, we've always dined out on the fact that our dad was a spy. Um, And as I've got older, I've just been completely mesmerised by some of the stories that he's told, told us. And it just seemed fitting to record it to podcasts, to share it with people. So, Dad, in the last podcast, we talked about your early career training, learning about surveillance at Bowmanor Hall, UK, um, and your your first international posting was to um, the Far East, to Hong Kong and to Labuan, uh, again in the early 60s. Could you tell us a little bit about why um, those two locations were so important? Yes, uh, I mean, for a young, um, for a young Air Force man going to uh, Hong Kong, I mean, that was the Far East, and I had uh, a rural upbringing, so very, very exciting to be going to a place like uh, like Hong Kong. It was mystical. It was full of stories and so on. And uh, we arrived in Hong Kong, absolutely amazed at the congestion and the bustle and the so on, and Chinese people and. Uh, and the way they conduct themselves and so on, lovely people, but just totally different. Uh, and it was it was exciting. I have to say that we um, it took us a week or two to get used to the to the whole thing, and uh, we had to travel quite a bit by Land Rover through um, through parts of Hong Kong to get to work and to uh, to to find out. You know, basically, what we had to do for the next uh, year or so, and um, the the villages I can remember very primitive. There were very high walls and very very closed-in societies that lived within them, and it was fascinating to be driven through that. Especially going on at night, you see places at the worst, and uh, that was that was one of the enduring memories of Hong Kong: the smells and the people and the, the conditions we were surviving in. Uh, very, very interesting. And so you, you talked about driving to work and you drove, your, your place of work was a, a direction finding state. Um, clo- it was um, close to the Chinese border. Um, what is a direction finding A direction finding station is, is uh, a means of taking uh, a bearing on, on a target. So that if someone has has uh, an HF, which is high frequency um, radio facilities, then in a in a direction finding uh, station, it's possible to sit and with the technology that they have, is to is to measure the angle that uh, that the the signal is coming from, and with three or four of those uh, similar stations, then it's possible to pinpoint the um, the exact location of the target. And that was that was uh, the case with China. So interested and so interested in China, an emerging power, very secretive, uh, very closed in by their geography, uh, very um, 
very uh, populist with with uh, with probably at that time the highest population of any other country uh, and to such an extent that of course a um, li- little bit later uh, after the in the 60s and the 70s they had to try and limit the the population but but their their uh, initial their initial um, targets were of of getting enough space for all the people that they had in China uh, and uh, that was not easy so they they assumed this mantle of secrecy and uh, they started um, invading bits of bits of uh, land in Manchuria and Mongolia and Chikatsi and Tibet which they were always interested in uh, to expand and and so on which they've done remarkably China were such a secretive politically and uh, strategically and economically there was so much interest in what was going on and this was really the first concerted effort that uh, allies and other countries uh, had and organized to be able to invigilate and see what was actually happening in China and to this day even it's uh, it's quite secretive although it is opening up now as has the size of the country they have annexed so many different uh, countries in the uh, on the borders mainly. You must always remember in a country like that with uh, Himalayas and, and other geographical features it's not easy to, to accommodate uh, such a large population. But uh, going back to the the time that uh, I was there in the Air Force, uh, a lot of countries including Australia, we used to work with some Australian Air Force. Uh, the Gurkhas were there, there for security because it was still quite a uh, tempestuous time with a lot of demonstrations and so on. And so you were how close to the Chinese border, Hong Kong? Yeah, we were uh, we were a few miles from the Chinese border, but uh, the actual uh, situation of the of the um, facility, the DF, the Direction Finding Hut, was quite scary because it was surrounded by paddy fields, which uh, at certain times of year. Uh, were flooded for planting rice and there was a catwalk that uh, stretched from a little uh, central uh, rest rest house thing we had which was within probably a few hundred meters so in the dark we used to have to we used to have to get a torch and walk uh, along this uh, catwalk with uh, water underneath your feet sometimes over the catwalk and they had crates and different types of snakes, so you had to be very vigilant um, walking along, um, avoiding the snakes. And we discovered that the, some of the um, fire extinguishers that they had at the time with uh, carbon tetrachloride, uh, if you squirted the, the, the CTC carbon tetrachloride at the snakes, they inhaled the fumes and they slowed down to the point where you could almost pick them up without any. So that was quite fun, but you had to be very careful. And of course, once you got into this uh, facility, it was uh, which was were, a wooden hut, which on was stilts, a wooden hut it? on stilts, mm-hmm. uh, and you were there by yourself. Uh, uh, it was possible for the uh, paddy fields, the farmers who were who were farming fields, 
to to creep in along the catwalk and look through the look through the glass window and it was quite it was quite intimidating we had there was one one guy who's come quite frequently and he had bad teeth and he a huge smile and he would look through the the um, window at three o'clock in the morning and flap his hands around put his tongue out and so scare the living daylights out. Scare it was it yes it, it was quite uh, done and that that HF station as China developed uh, at a rapid race uh, rate the the um, HF facility wasn't uh, required to the same extent and I believe it's now it closed about uh, 20 years ago. So. But at that time it was vital for you collecting data vital. and intelligence on, on Chinese movements where you Absolutely. could. Absolutely, vital. And and you were saying dad that you were um, positioned in this wooden hut on stilts. Um, I should imagine young a bunch of young guys living in a resting house close to to, the, to there with one another, age 20-something, you also had quite a lot of fun. Yeah, there was uh, lots of things uh, happening. And um, it was, uh, I mean, in general terms, uh, a bunch of young Air Force uh, personnel, they would get up to all sorts of tricks. And, and uh, some of them would creep out in the middle of the night uh, with funny masks on and they would suddenly leap up at the windows and screech, screeching and so on. So we got used to that, but it was there was all, all sorts of things that, that happened there. And, and did you get involved with the locals? Did you get to know the local farmers? We, we, we got involved with the local farmers who most of the time uh, were using water buffalo to, um, to um, plough the paddy fields and and they, they used to plod along and they had a peculiar way of whistling uh, to control the water buffaloes. They would whistle to go left and whistle to go right, very much like sheepdog trials in, in the UK. So we, we learned how to how to uh, whistle so that if they whistled to go left, we knew the whistle to go right. So we used to, uh, a group of us, go out and start. And the, the paddy field farmers used to get so angry because they would have a water buffalo or two careering around the field, going in the wrong direction. So we didn't do that too often, but but uh, it, it was fun at the time. So, Dad, you then spent some time in Labuan on detachment from your posting in Hong Kong. Could you tell us a little bit about why you were there and why it was of such strategic importance to the government? Yes, it was It was a small island that was situated very close to Borneo, Brunei, in fact, nearest uh, nearest area in, in Borneo to uh, Labuan. And there was interest by, by the various countries, including the Allies, of the situation in Borneo and Brunei in particular, where oil had been explored and they had begun to to uh, drill for oil, and it became a very um, very wealthy part of the world. But our interest was making sure that those supplies of oil we had some uh, control over agreements with the, the Brunei and the and the uh, Indonesian government. So that that was the main. Factor, but the um, the direction finding facility there was really connected to that. The Japanese had had um, 
annexed various parts of that of Indonesia and Labuan was one of them. Um, there w was evidence in a very small island, it's, it's, it's really quite, quite small in, in terms of the size of uh, Borneo and so on, but there, there were signs of the invasion by the Japanese and the... Was that during the Second World that War? That was during the Second World War and they had left masses of uh, equipment and ammunition all over the island. Some of it secreted, some of it, uh, some of it not, and that that is a matter of interest, historical interest. That is where the Japanese uh, high command signed the papers for surrender. There's, there's now a, a beautiful monument on the beach uh, uh, in Labuan that uh, commemorates that that signing. And you, you were telling me earlier that, that you had quite a lot of fun with the munitions that were left behind by the Japanese, and, and I'm surprised to, to hear that you're still here after that. Can you tell me a little bit about that? For sure. That was, that was uh, young, young Air Force people uh, getting up to mischief, but uh, we found that the, that the uh, surrounds around the uh, DF at the direction finding, which was partially in the jungle, but but, but uh, open enough to not to inhibit the targets. And we found that there were piles of ammunition, um, guns that they left in various states of, um, of uh, repair and so on. So what we used to do for a bit of fun at the weekends was collect this <laughs> ammunition and we, we'd, we'd get little bundles of it, light a bonfire and then at a the appropriate time, chuck in this ammunition and run like hell to take cover behind <laughs> the trees in the jungle. And then, and then it was fun to see. And afterwards, you could see some of the trees that had caught the um, the ammunition. You know, it was a silly thing to do, but it was very, uh, very interesting. I'm surprised that you all survived. Well, it was it was that was one of the dangers in in Labuan, but the other one was. Uh, wildlife and it was just a proliferation of sharks and and so on off the uh, off the coast and one of the sandy uh, bays that we used to frequent we used to um, use some of the the tanks the fuel tanks that that the aircraft were using because it was very strategic at the time for American aircraft to come in and British aircraft to come in uh, probably a support to the oil industry, but also surveillance to see what was happening in the South China Seas and so on. Uh, anyway, this uh, at that time, so many sharks and and sea snakes. Now we used we used to convert these these cigar-shaped uh, wing tanks into rafts. <laughs> so we'd have two of these and a and a few boards in the middle, and we used to. Um, we used to put our snorkels on and then paddle our way across the the reef. There was a coral reef, and I can remember one occasion when um, when one of my colleagues from Scotland, in fact, a place called Huntley, and uh, we were we were flapping about, and you had to wear flippers, and because um, if you got into the water, the the coral snakes used to come straight up at you, and the only way you could you could defend yourself was to 
was to uh, flap your flippers as fast <laughs> as you could and they would come to tear and go back but we were doing this uh, one day and and uh, my friend Gordon was was uh, he wasn't a very good swimmer and he was uh, flapping about in the water but doing okay and this hammerhead came up and um, only about 10 feet from him and it did a, a sort of roll and it's it's huge um, extended head came up and walloped down and Gordon got so uh, so panicked that he he started gulping in water so we had to go in and pull him out <laughs> he reminded me of it many years afterwards saying you saved my life but anyway that was that was one of the interesting things of being in a place like that well jungle I mean it's amazing jungle in oh, that line, just it? incredible and the species that were there because it was isolated and it uh, hadn't much uh, population was was very small mm. it was yeah interesting times yeah and and the direction finding stations they weren't just so you were you were based in them in Labuan and in in Hong Kong but they were also really important in the UK a number of direction find stations and one in particular that you mentioned in the last podcast Scarborough so tell me a little bit about that yes yeah, Scar- Scarborough was uh, was uh, created the direction finding facility was created a long, long time ago because uh, of interest in, in the Germans, the German High Command, and so on. And um, it uh, was set up on the Yorkshire coast, quite close to the to the sea, only a, a short distance away. And uh, the prime uh, purpose of that was to was to direct find out what uh, was sailing and coming close to uh, Britain like the submarines that were ploughing their way up and down the coast and uh, all sorts of um, different different shipping, destroyers, um, battleships and so on. Uh, and that in um, conjunction with other sites around the UK gave an extended baseline which uh, allowed us to pinpoint the um, the position of, of some of those targets and it became very very effective in in uh, for the allies american and and the british and some of the european countries to to keep a, keep uh, some sort of track on what was happening and of course it meant that um our ships could go in and depth charge and so on if if uh, they knew the exact position of submarines the Bismarck was was one of the one of the targets, and that was that was very much to do with the effort that uh, Scarborough put in to detecting uh, its um, position, exact position, and um, feeding that into the various authorities. And of course, it was it was torpedoed. The Bismarck was torpedoed. Uh, was torpedoed, yes, towards the end of the war, and that was, I think, that was the headquarters at the time of the uh, naval high command. So that was that was a fantastic thing to happen, from the point of view of of uh, the well-being of the Allies. It was a huge triumph, but uh, yes, no, interesting. And so Scarborough was responsible for finding the Bismarck, was it? Yes, it was. It was uh, Scarborough's work uh, identifying that it was transmissions were from the Bismarck. The sinking of the Bismarck was a really important point in the Second World War, and it was all 
down to Scarborough. It was all down to Scarborough and uh, in cooperation with other uh, direction finding sites. And uh, But they were instrumental in recognising that it was the transmissions that they were monitoring uh, emanated from the Bismarck and also helped the, the other stations who were listening to and measuring the, um, the um, point in the compass. Uh, and all of those things meant that the, the Allies knew exactly the position of Bismarck and they destroyed it in its sight. And this news about Scarborough um, and the location, the direction finding station, um, which was located at a little farm called Crofts Bar, um, only came to light in November of 2019. GCHQ released this information at its 100th year anniversary. And it's just incredible that this, these stations that were so, such a, so much a part of your early career and using the technology that we had back in the 1960s and earlier, that, that they were just so important for, for national security. Absolutely. I mean, there were little garden sheds, but the size of a garden shed with uh, four, four aerial masts, which were not very, not very thick, not very big. So they escaped attention, but they got so, the local people got so used to them being there. And they were so low pro- profile anyway, that they just, uh, they blended were accepted into the blended into the background, yeah. Absolutely fascinating. Well, if, if you ever needed any testament to the importance of intelligence in keeping trees safe, these directional findings example. So thank you ever so much. That was um, just you. so interesting. There's so much more that we'll be covering over the, the future podcasts. Um, I think it's time for your lunch because I've, I've kept you here for an hour and I'm sure the people that are going to be listening to this podcast will be ready to go and have a break themselves. Um, but we're going to come back at the next, at the next podcast, pod, podcast. Um, and we'll talk about the the move that Dad then made um, to another country. So if you join us next time, we'd be very glad to have you. And thank you very much again, Dad. <laughs>